guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. This is one podcast, I kid you not, uh, I am really excited to to do because of what's happening right now, of course, with the conflict, and you're the one guest that really can shed some light from the other side and have like perspective that probably nobody else that, you know, that I've seen have. And so this is such an honor to have you. And thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. And I didn't even say your name, but this is the son of Hamas, you guys. His name is Musab Hassan Yosef. Is that, did I say that right? Yes. And I think we should start at the beginning, right? Because I have a bazillion questions about your background and the evolution of your, of how you became where you are now. And so why don't we start at the beginning for anybody who doesn't know who you, who, who, who has no familiarity with who you are. So you're on, Masab. Who are you? <laughs> I'm a ghost. Yeah, you really are. <laughs> yes. Well, I was born as a Palestinian Arab in the West Bank, in a small town of Ramallah, and uh, my family was and is still a very religious, conservative Muslim family. Uh, my father had the big aspiration to uh, reform Islam, to bring Islam back to the world. Uh, at that time, Islam was dead. It was not popular. And uh, my mother was the first woman in our town to actually wear a hijab. So uh, our family has been a leading force uh, of the Islamic revolution. And I was their oldest son. They had uh, big expectations from me. I went to the mosque at a very young age. My father was gone most of the time, and that was his secret mission, establishing Hamas. Of course, I didn't know as a child, but I would chase after him for the dawn prayer, some 5 a.m. in the morning, facing the dogs, wild dogs on the streets, sometimes fighting with them. Uh, on my way to the mosque, so I can see a little bit of him. So you can say from very young age, my father was gone. And uh, I had to fill the gap. I was there uh, with my mother, with our, my siblings, and uh, I took responsibility for the family at very young age. But again, I didn't know the nature of Hamas and what my father exactly was doing. He would just show up in the middle of the night, dressed up like an old man, with a cane in his hand, even though he was just in his mid-30s at that time. And I would wonder, you know, why is he dressed up like an old man? Uh, but this was his uh, cover. So the IDF wouldn't uh, recognize him and treat him just like an elder coming back from Hamas mission or a Hamas secret uh, meeting. So basically, this is, this is the early memories of, uh, of me as a child in relation to family and father, mother, siblings. How old were you by the, at this point? Like what was your, um, when you started all the Hamas, when your father started, you were how old? So Hamas, we're talking roughly 10 years old. Lots of things happen around that age. Yeah. 10, 11. So let's talk about your dad, of course, who was on the founders of Hamas. Did you remember before 10, what he was doing before he even conceptualized creating Hamas, what was he involved with? Was he, what was he doing? 
prior to Hamas, my father was a leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, mm. which basically the mother organization of Hamas, because Hamas is just a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. I was going. That was my next question. Can you tell everybody really what Hamas is and what the actual purpose was, and did it change over time? So Hamas is the branch of the Muslim Brotherhood in the Palestinian occupied territories. They use the Palestinian national cause to push their religious and uh, ideological agendas. Hamas was established with the purpose of destroying the state of Israel in order to establish an Islamic state, not a Palestinian state. And this is where many people get confused. Mm -hmm. They say pro-Palestine, free Palestine, but they don't know that they are advocating to uh, a non-national organization. Because Hamas does not believe in politics or political borders. We're talking about Islamists who want to dominate the globe. And of course, people find it very strange when they say, but Hamas is very small and it's only the Palestinian territories. How, how could this be even possible? So they don't see it as a direct threat. What they don't realize is that Hamas is just a sub-movement belonging to, to the biggest Islamic movement in the world, and that is the Muslim Brotherhood. More than 100 million active members worldwide, including the United States, including Europe. And the Muslim Brotherhood inspired not only Hamas, they inspired Al-Qaeda, they inspired Bin Laden. If you look who's Bin Laden's mentor, you will find a guy's name, Abdullah Azzam. Abdullah Azzam was a top leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. So who inspired them is Hassan al-Banna and Sayyid Qutb. They both hated the United States very much. And since mid-past century, let's say until now, they spread so much hatred. And there is no terrorist organization, Islamist organization that haven't been or hasn't been inspired by Hassan al-Banna and Sayyid Qutb. So basically, my father is belonging to this lineage, to this heritage of uh, Islamic, very aggressive, very violent uh, intellect, dogma, cult, whatever you want to call it. So the Muslim Brotherhood then has all these spin, like Hamas is just one of the offshoots. Then you have, like you said, all the other ones. Like, is ISIS one of the... the is, no. Uh, ISIS is not. No, it's, it's not, but... They are all inspired. 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 It's like, for example, Hamas is the closest in its uh, ideology, philosophy to the mother organization. But mm -hmm. they are like other organizations that basically went sideways. They went a bit farther than the center of the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood, maybe to even more extreme, like Al-Qaeda. For example, the Muslim Brotherhood believe in infrastructure. They believe mm. that we have to have schools, hospitals, charity. Uh, we have to have mosques. Uh, uh, we have to have uh, da'wah, which is the Islamic uh, outreach. Right. While the Salafi jihadists believe, no, we have to achieve our goal, but through jihad and jihad only. We don't have time to go build infrastructure and invest all our energy in a society Instead, we have to just recruit members and go to jihad directly. They want to go to the use of force. So the Muslim Brotherhood has different uh, strategy. But at the end of the day, they all have share the same goal, which is to dominate the globe, 
create one nation under one religious and ideological banner, and that is Islam. So then if they're all, they, they all have the, a different goal, even, I mean, sorry, they all have the same goal, but how to get to the goal is different. Is the difference, yes. But yet a lot of the, a lot of, I mean, you can tell me you're the, you're more of an expert, obviously, than I am. I'm, I'm definitely not. I'm not a politician or an expert. That's why this is such a fascinating conversation to me. Like Hamas, ISIS, Taliban, all the different terrorist groups, they don't like each other, though, even though they have the same goal in mind like if you if we if everyone wants to kill israel why wouldn't that not be or like to uh, to to demolish israel would that that connecting point would make them unite but it doesn't correct there are rivals and uh, of course uh, they have a conflict of interest but there is something in common that they all hate israel and they use this hypothetical mm-hmm. entity that is actually non-existential. It exists only to them because they don't know what Israel is. But as long as there is this common enemy where they all can hate, this is their common ground. This is their common target. And this is what brings them together. But trust me, if there was no Israel in the picture, they will kill each other. Right. And do they do they kill each other? They even don't with kill the, each exactly. other. Exactly. That's why my my don't like they are they fight all the time. So even though they have the same common goal, it doesn't seem to change. Look in the Middle East, we have this problem tribalism, and this is coming from the seventh century, mm-hmm. where a tribe keeps trying to annihilate another tribe uh, until getting annihilated or having total victory. Yeah, annihilated, right? Anni- annihilated. Yeah. So this is basically their, uh, this is tribalism. And uh, before Muhammad and after Muhammad, the problem continued until today. You can find it in Shiite, Sunni conflict. Hundreds of thousands of Muslims died, if not millions actually, in the conflict between the two major sects, Shiite and Sunni. So if you tell me Muslims mm-hmm. don't hate each other, I don't agree. The amount of hatred within the Arab world, within the Muslim society is unbelievable. But uh, for the past, let's say 70 years, they found a common enemy. Mm-hmm. And that's what's bringing Shia, Sunni, and the uh, division and the subdivision of all these various groups with different ideologies to be united with a purpose to annihilate the state of Israel. Well, look what happened, like when this whole, when when October 7th happened and Israel was basically defending themselves and told the Gazans to leave, nobody, not one Arab state wanted to take the Palestinians. Well, Palestinians, wherever they went, they brought trouble. You know, for example, in Jordan, what Yasser Arafat did, Mm -hmm. he became a threat to the king. He bullied the king. And he interfered with the national security of Jordan until the king got fed up with him and Black September have, have happened where, mm-hmm. you know, the king buried thousands of Yasser Arafat fighters and Yasser Arafat and his forces were expelled to Lebanon. But in Lebanon, Yasser Arafat went stay quiet. He interfered with the in, inter, internal uh, issues. And as a result of that, the Lebanese civil war happened where devastated Lebanon, until today, Lebanese people paying the price. 
So wherever Yasser Arafat or what so-called Palestinian revolution moved, they brought destruction, they brought trouble, corruption, violence. So yes, the Arab countries prefer not to have any Palestinian refugee on their, uh, on their soil. Well, I mean, I'm going to get to that part after. I still want to get, I want to really, I want to stick to your, because I want to get to how everything from how you basically, I want to get, I want to stay with your childhood because I want to, I want people to understand how you denounced your family and your religion. You became a spy for, you became like a, you became a spy for Israel for 10 years. I want to understand how this all happened. So when you were 10 years old, your father was creating Hamas. And how did he start indoctrinating you? Uh, and and you also have five, what, five? You're, you're the oldest, but how many brothers and sisters? Five brothers and three sisters. Five brothers and three sisters. Were they all being indoctrinated or just you because you were the oldest at that point? All of us were influenced to a certain degree. But of course, uh, being the oldest son, I had the lion's share. Mm -hmm. And... Um, since childhood, you can say I had a problem with the society that the gap start uh, widening. There were things about the culture that I did not like. Uh, most importantly, I did not like the uh, rigid discipline within our family and the religious class where I belonged. And I have to say it's very, very tough. Uh, it wasn't uh, an easy childhood. And I like it because it taught me discipline and it taught me a lot about uh, self-control and uh, fasting at very young age during the summer of the Middle East, sometimes was up to 16 hours, no water, no food. And I was only still five, six years old. This is when I started that, my entire life. And wow. we do this like an entire month. And uh, if I... Uh, don't make it to the mosque or I misbehave or I say something that was not uh, respectful to the other Muslims, etc., or violate any Islamic rule, uh, I would be beaten up by the family or by the family friends or by the imam at the mosque or by the teacher, by the principal, by the even strangers on the street. And um, I had always to run for my life, like literally. Every day I had to confront monsters and uh, there was no day without uh, being injured or shedding blood because of this type of fights and struggle for just my freedom in things that I was trying very hard to meet with their expectations. Not, you know, I, I was yeah. not lazy, but I didn't know better. I'm just, I was just a child. Like what kind of thing would get you in Give me an example. Very stupid, silly stuff about uh, religious rules that I did not understand. So like, take for example, if I uh, caused trouble at the mosque, if people were praying and I would just play around, cause any noise that now is disturbing the prayer. Right. And I was very good at that. The punishment was just unbelievable. And my mother agreed to it. My father was in prison at that time. And the person who wanted to punish me was his, one of his best friends and co-founder of Hamas as well. His name is Fadl Hamdan. And he is actually a disciple of Abdullah Azam who inspired Bin Laden. This oh. is what they had in common uh, with them. But anyway, this guy was very, very tough. So anyway, he invited me to his house in the evening. And uh, my mother said, Sheikh Fadl wants to see you. Would you come with me? I was like, yes, for sure. And I'm going just my the innocent child. And we go after uh, the evening prayer to his house. 
to my surprise, I sit in the living area, which his entire family was uh, asked to leave. And he tied me up to a post. And I was like, is this kind of joke? You know, he did not express any anger. Then I see him reach to uh, the heater's uh, cable, electric cable, this thick. And he took it from uh, the wall and the heater. And he came from behind it just like he was as calm. And thought that the whole thing was just basically trying to scare me. Right. Until he started whipping me with the electric cable. This is when I lost my breath. I literally lost my breath, my capacity to breathe. And I was trying to inhale and I couldn't. And he's not understanding that I could not breathe. And he just kept going until I blacked out. And my mother is watching the whole thing. So this was an early memory of violence of that, uh, of that culture. And how old were you at that time? Probably eight or nine years old. The marks on my back stayed for weeks, if not months. So this is the early discipline of the way. And that society. And of course, you know, when you, when you push a child uh, to the corner to this degree, you don't expect from them, you know, that they are going to just praise the society afterwards. It was very violent. It was not the first time or the last time where I got beaten up many, many times in that society. And that's a very common thing, by the way. And there even I can go a lot farther with traumas that they are devastating. But I'm not here you know, to say that I'm a victim of that culture. No, no, and this no, but is, I wanna I wanna and, know like what happens at that age because yeah. I don't think I don't that I don't think people know. They don't. They don't how, nobody knows. Nobody knows outside of me how it felt to right. be to be a child in that brutal culture. So when you see the brutality and the savages taking over, annihilating everything in their way, this is not coincidental. It's a rape culture. This is another dimension of it, which I was a victim of it as well. You were? Of course. And I talked about it. To everyone's surprise, no one ever asked me who it was. No one cared. Even though I was a victim of the most devastating crime ever, and nobody cared to come and say, like, who was it? Or try to go get justice for it. So we're talking about uh, a rape culture a very violent culture. Then... Uh, Wait, who was it? It was basically someone I don't even remember their name. Uh, it was uh, a member of a family that my father entrusted. I go with them for the olive harvest. So my father was in there. And before the dark came, uh, his family trusted him to take me home because we were deep in the mountains. And they did not want the dark to come. It would be dangerous uh, for me to just uh, travel. And they wanted me just simply to go back to my family. So they entrusted me with one of their sons. And uh, what happened, happened. I ran for my life. I was very small. I think I wasn't probably like six, six and a half, no more than seven. I don't even remember how I was. It was around like the eight, uh, the eight, 86, 87. So... This is what was the beginning of the chaos. You know, and of course, I, I try not to mention this event. It's, it's known to public. It's not a secret. It's not the first time I reveal it. But I try not to talk about it because many people try to tie my position, my moral stand where I stand today, 
to the trauma of my childhood as a rape victim. And I don't like this thing because it's not only a personal, it's not only what happened to me as a child. It's the entire system that inspired or inspires a rape culture, the violence, the sexual repression, the way the society treat women, which basically the unnatural way of living. It's contradicting evolution. It's contradicting the human nature by the name of religion, by the name of ideology. And it's all hypocrisy. And uh, when we have a natural system like this that contradicts the human nature and uh, where, you know, lovemaking becomes a taboo, uh, becomes a forbidding, then we have all type of uh, social problems. And this is why it is a rape culture. So for me, I always ask myself, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? And why is it happening to many children in the Middle East? And why? And you can ask uh, those who know, who have the statistics, and it's only intelligence services mm -hmm. who have the, the actual numbers, or let's say a clear vision uh, or view of what's happening to children in the Arab world. And the rest, they don't care and they don't have actually access because many of the rape victims, they don't talk about their, their trauma because it's very shameful. Even today, as an adult, I'm a very strong man. And immediately, somebody would say, oh, he's fucked up. Because it's and nobody, many rape victims, they don't want to say, right. because you become the victim. And now we, everybody wonders like, okay, how, how bad, how devastating was that trauma to this individual? And uh, most people prefer to stay silent because they are ashamed or because they are afraid of the consequences. Who's going to marry them? Who's going to accept them? Uh, mm -hmm. Who's going to befriend them? So this is, this is another struggle that rape victims have to go with, not only on a physical, spiritual, and emotional level, especially when, uh, when they are very young. So for me, that, that opened many questions about reality, about God. Because one of the things was that uh, when I did not find my father around for help, I looked for, for the superior power. Mm -hmm. And as a child, I asked for help, but it did not come. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, do we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're online courses or a physical product, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever or whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with their internet's best converting checkout. It's actually 36% better on average compared to any other leading commerce platform. And sell more with less efforts thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash hustle. That's all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash hustle now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash hustle.
Have you guys tried Factor yet? Factor is a ready-to-eat meal delivery that takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success in the new year. Skip the grocery stores, the prep work, and cooking fatigue. Instead, get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and so much more, plus over 55 weekly add-ons, you'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options to kickstart your resolutions. Factor now offers loads of snack options too, and like breakfast and smoothies, juices, snacks, and more to keep me going no matter what's on my schedule. And when things get super hectic, Factor is flexible. Change your order up every week with plans from 4 to 18 meals per week, or pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash habits and hustle 50 and use code habits and hustle 50 to get 50% off. That's code habits and hustle 50 at factormeals.com slash habits and hustle 50 to get 50% off. Well, first of all, even the idea though this happened to you, right, with the beating and the rape as a, as a, with a, being a small child and being tra- traumatized, that why would that not be enough of a reason to then to basically turn your head away from a culture like that? You're saying you don't want that to be the you don't want that to be the reason why people think that you've kind of gone the other way, but is that that's in that's a reason in itself to go the other way if that's part of the culture that you've been indoctrinated into yes but right? then then it will be revenge but what okay maybe i mean so, i see why you're saying yes that. if if my motive was revenge uh, many people will understand but what uh, yeah. but this is not my approach right not at all because eventually i had lots of power like uh, uh, maybe maybe the God I was looking for help empowered me in a way that nobody expected in that society. At some point, I was able to bring armies in and out, and I was able to destroy any opponent. Wow. And I had the capacity not only to destroy my rapist, I was able to do a lot worse to him did than, you? than what he did to me. What did you do? And I did not have hard feelings towards him, period. But okay, so I want to know what you did to him to get for the re- for the revenge. But all these other people, these children who had the same tra- traumatic experiences, why? Like it can't be that all of these people just kind of accepted it and held it in and just kept on going. Like they're like when you told your mom, your mom that, that your mother. That oh, my mother happened. did not know. Oh, she didn't know about no. this. Okay, I was very ashamed for a long period of time. So at what age so, did you tell people that this So was- the first time I talked about this when I was 28 years old. Oh. Uh, and uh, this is what I meant from that point on. Nobody ever asked me who was it. No one. This is how much people don't care. And again, I was able to take revenge. And I'm still able to take revenge. Yeah. But but it, this is not... We're, that's not your purpose. This is not what I want to accomplish. I want to solve the fundamental problems that are leading to this type of crime. And uh, part of it, a huge part of it is violence and sexual repression. I came to this conclusion. 
and they're devastating. Uh, not coincidental what we see now uh, from the October 7 attacks, uh, lots of rape happened. Okay, Hamas did part of it at the party. Uh, lots of young women and uh, many of them were uh, basically uh, partying and uh, the Hamas people probably uh, n never thought they would be in a situation like this. Hence, lots of rape happened at the party, but it was not the only place. Later on, many civilians from Gaza crossed the fence after Hamas had opened the fence and after their first wave of attacks and many of the rapes were committed by Gaza civilians, not even Hamas members only. So this is why when I saw the videos and I hear the stories, I can totally relate to this problem because this is a fundamental problem in right. the culture. And the people can go on for eternity saying, Israel is our enemy and Israel is the devil, but they never protect the children from rapists. And they, instead of fighting against violence, they increase violence and they use violence, especially against children, where the parents beat their uh, child, the, the teacher beat their child the, at the mosque, wherever they go. So for me, before you tell me uh, the society want to preach me about Israel and this external enemy, how about the child within, you know, and when this child is going to get his justice? So basically, it's this child journey fighting for answers, fighting for justice, and anything that is not satisfactory, is not satisfying to me, is rejected. If I wanted only to take revenge, maybe uh, I would get a little bit of satisfaction. But my ultimate satisfaction is to fight the origin of this problem. And every authority, that empowers it or stands behind it. First of all, you know, it's interesting that I don't even think the majority of people even realize that a lot of the, Gaza, the civilians from Gaza came through afterwards to do so much of the pillaging, the raping, and which then leads me to another question, which I was going to, I wanted to ask you this later on, but you, I want you touched upon it, which was what is in your opinion of the the Gazans, the Palestinian people, that do you, do you believe that they are pro-Hamas? Do you think that they are scared because of what the, the, the repercussions? Where is their mindset? Because they've been indoctrinated from such a young age as you were. They've been, they've been traumatized, all the rest. Where, like, what do you, just by showing that most, a lot of them went across to do all these atrocious things. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Because people separate the two. Like they're like, Hamas is different from the civilians, from the other Palestinians. Is that accurate in your opinion? Look, it really doesn't matter whether they are pro-Hamas or not. What really matters, are they anti-Israel or not? This is the more important question. And the entire Palestinian society, not only the Palestinian society, the Arab nation agree that Israel is the greatest enemy and Israel must be destroyed. That's the mass majority of the Arab world. And this is where you need to focus. Because if we want to go into the rabbit hole, who do they support? Do they support Hamas? Do they support Fatah? You know, and there is a moderate and there is extreme and there is, then you go into this rabbit hole, you never finish. Mm -hmm. There is something that they agree on, that Israel does not have the right to exist. And this is obvious. 
today in this war that we don't see powerful Arab countries publicly, or at least, let's say, Palestinian figures, influential figures that step forward and say, we condemn Hamas atrocities, we condemn Hamas genocide. But if you want to go, did they vote to Hamas? Yes, a majority voted for Hamas. It has been a while. So some people might argue and say this is invalid because the election was back in 2006. So this is why I don't even feel the uh, need to go this route. Mm -hmm. And we saw what happened immediately after October 7. They brought hostages, teenagers, youngsters, infants, and the people of Gaza were celebrating. They're cheering. It's, uh, it was uh, a great victory, wasn't it? When one of the hostages escaped for four days, the civilians who captured him and brought him back to Hamas. When a society validates genocide, and this is practically what happened on October 7, by all standards, that was a genocide committed by Hamas, the ruling authority government of Gaza. And the Gazan people did not make their position different than Hamas. Instead, they gave Hamas cover. They still give Hamas cover. Even if you want to forget about the Gazans and think about the West Bank, which is far away from Gaza, not connected to Gaza, and they have a lot more freedom, and they are actually the rival party of Hamas, they did not condemn Hamas publicly, meaning that they are justifying Hamas genocide, meaning that they are agreeing that Hamas act of a genocide was part of what's so-called resistance, which in my, in my opinion, is not resistance, it's not nationalism, it's not self-defense, it's only one thing, and that is genocidal attack motivated by very dark hatred and revenge. And this is the tribal mentality, I told you, that is coming from the seventh century. Because this is what tribes used to do to each other. If they had an account to settle, a tribe would go and annihilate everything in their way, take women and children as booty and sell them to slavery or enslave them and kill all men. This is the mentality, this is what it means, the tribalism of the Middle East. Same mentality, nothing changed. When I saw a Hamas savage holding a teenager girl from the neck, dragging her into a vehicle into the unknown, that was the image of what Hamas is capable of doing, which basically they want to dominate. They want to take over territory, they want more power, and they want to enslave everybody, everything that comes in their way, everything becomes their property. To this savage that was not a prisoner of war as much as a booty, something that he owns now, something that he can bargain for money, for mass murderers, for whatever it takes. So if Hamas approach was, let's say if their fight was a political fight and they were fighting against the military and there was a female soldier that Hamas had some respect, they had some protocol to follow, treat them as uh, war prisoners uh, to for exchange of soldiers been captured during the war, I understand. But you are capturing a teenage girl, kidnapped her from a party, into an underground uh, city you built 
under Gaza to bargain for exchange with mass murderers. People who killed and wounded thousands of people. Someone like Ibrahim Hamid and Abdullah al uh, By the way, that's also, I, I got like, we're going to be, I'm sorry we're jumping around a lot here because I have all of these things written down about the, the, the exchange, the 50 innocent civilians that they, that they stole and grabbed for a bunch of terror, 150 terrorists. And the idea that there's all these people out there saying, oh, well, they, Israel had all these innocent pr people, these children as prisoners. What you can, you can talk to this, like you were in prison in Israel for when you were a spy, which we, we still haven't gotten to, we will. Can you talk about the fact, can you explain what really happens in the prison? Are those people innocent? My prison experience was uh, at another level into this chaos that chaotic world. Absolutely. We haven't even gotten to that. But we, again, I'm just going by what you're, I'm, I'm going by what you're saying. Yeah, this is what we can do, you mm -hmm. know, at, at once just small, uh, that's all I can. First of all, my language betray me. Every time I try to talk about this human experience in this chaos, and I wish it was just a trauma of a child and things got better. No, things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And I was trying to explain, I make this uh, analogy of that the gap between me and Hamas just kept widening and widening and widening until now that there is a difference between them and me is like a universe, mm -hmm. a galaxy. But my experience in prison was something very ugly and very different. And that was the first time I saw Hamas brutality on a much bigger scale than the scale of a child than just being whipped or lashed by a crazy Islamic uh, uh, leader. In prison, they tortured and they killed hundreds of prisoners. And that was my imprisonment back in 1996. My first imprisonment. But this wasn't the Israeli prison. It was in Israel. Oh, Israel. Oh, this was the Israeli, Israeli prison. Israeli prison. Okay. Inmates killing inmates, basically. Hamas security wing, trying to figure out who gave information for the Israeli intelligence. In the process, they tortured, they killed many Palestinian prisoners in the worst possible way. 16 months in that term, day and night, the screams of those prisoners. How can I, how can I forget? You know, we're not talking about just you witnessed an incident, an ugly thing, a fight someone got killed, then you go and you try to heal yourself from that trauma. Talking about I had to live with it for 16 months. And that's a monster my father helped establish. I lost my father at a very young age when I mean I lost him that he wasn't there for this project. So I had the authority to question the heck of it. What is it that we were doing that brought us here? Is this the project that he's getting busy far away from my mother? spending most of his life in prison or leading a secret life, orchestrating this monster that I'm just face to face with in prison. So that was, that was the moment that where the childhood trauma, growing up in that brutal culture, all the injustice, all the chaos of the people that I did not like was something. What happened in prison was something else. And this is where I start questioning Hamas, and not only questioning Hamas, 
this is where I start having a serious problem with Hamas in prison. And it was not accidental that the security wing responsible for the killing, the torture, the death in prison were the military wing leaders outside of prison. So after my release from prison and the Israeli intelligence uh, approached me, whether they knew my mental state and my hatred against Hamas, and I thought that I was, say, I had a great potential, that I could agree to the work, whether they knew or they didn't know. We met around the perfect timing where I was on a quest to destroy Hamas. And that was not only because of the trauma of a child. Now it became just a matter of justice that the same group that killed and tortured hundreds of Palestinian prisoners in prison are the same group sending suicide bombers, targeting buses, schools, universities, beaches, killing everything in their way, including Holocaust survivors. So when the Israeli intelligence approached me with a proposal, hey, it's going out of control, this group sabotaging the entire peace process, they're killing people indiscriminately, it's your father's organization, but still, do you agree to what's happening? Are you going to do something about it? And um, they challenged me, they challenged me morally, and I was ready, deep inside me, I was ready to fight this monster, and I agreed. But of how course. did they know? Like, go back a bit, because how did that even happen? Why were you even in prison in the first place? How did you even become a prisoner? Like, where were you in your life that that even happened to even be there? Right. Well, at, uh, I got involved with uh, one of Hamas uh, uh, military cells. At that time, I was the president of the Islamic uh, student movement. That was not an armed organization. How old were you at this point? I was 18 years old. So even though you had all this trauma as a child and everything else, with your, you still were living the life that your father of kind course. of, you know, wanted you to. Of course, it's it's not like the I, I blamed, let's say, right. this bad guy, but the rest were good. Then I blamed, let's say, a big group of the movement, but the, always my father was my model and my father was good. So I compared everyone. I say, okay, many of his organization are bad, but my father is good. So still I still your father. So I still I was always the bond between my, me and my father that was keeping me in that realm. So even though you had these, you you, you knew that already that these. Everything that was around you was not was was bad. You you had such a love for your father. Yes, it's so he was. You were like kind of like you're basically doing your family business, like in, like kind of how yeah. similar how like yeah. we would in America or anywhere else, right? Like you were just following your dad's footsteps, right? So you became the president of the Islamic. Would you say it was the Islamic student, student uh, movement? Okay, which meant which was what? What was that? What is that? It's basically this is a chapter or uh, a branch of Hamas okay. that is recruiting students at schools, universities, and that's a very important uh, division of Hamas. This is basically where the indoctrination, the early stages of uh, recruitment. So they start doing it around what what age? Would you say if you were eighteen um, doing it? They start, with me personally, they start as early as seven or eight years old. Right, because you were, the, because you were, the, you were his son. It's because basically wherever my father uh, also went, the summer camps, he always wanted me to be involved in such activities. So not everybody, many came later. 
but as part of Hamas leadership, we were at a very, very young age. My mother all the time used to say, you were born in a mosque. She said, when I was pregnant of you, I never missed a prayer at the mosque. You were always there even before your birth. This was she, when she always wanted to remind me of my role right. uh, of that. So if I missed a prayer at the mosque, she would be very, very angry with right. me. It's just like, you know, how come you did not? And that was a very early 4 a.m. wake up call that I needed to make it to the mosque, regardless of what's going on outside, the cold of the night, the beasts on the streets, the rapists, whatever it is that if my father wasn't there, I was required to go there and finish my prayer before the sunrise. And this is before memory. <laughs> right. Like you're like a kid. So then like at 18, now you're the president of the mosque, you know, student association. Student. So your job was to go into the schools and to indoctrinate, to get these other people, other kids or whatever, uh, yes. students. What was your, how, so how did you do it? What was the process? Well, there are lots of uh, activities. I had lots of charisma when I was very young. You still and, have charisma. Uh, <laughs> still have charisma. Well, it depends. It depends. Some people uh, maybe see it uh, completely different. But as a public speaker, I love to speak. And I was not afraid of the crowd. Mm. So uh, this was uh, my, my strength. And uh, this is actually what qualified me. It was not uh, just being my father's son. Mm. I remember once... Uh, there was dispute on a political issue and uh, I was very young and very small in size in comparison to the other students who used to bully me, sometimes beat me. And uh, I, I would defend myself, but they, they were a lot bigger and a lot faster. And if they were a group or a pack, it was many times I just find myself uh, black out on the sidewalk after getting a very bad beat. But they never silenced me. And uh, I remember I was 15 or 16, and it was a rainy day, and the entire school was just packed at the cafeteria. And I jumped on one of those tables, and I start talking to the crowd just with whatever I had, challenging them with their hypocrisy, with their cowardice, with their, I would say, misperception. But I found whatever words there to just yell, scream out loud, fearlessly in a cafeteria. And literally everybody was shocked because, first of all, none of them would have, have or had dared to jump on a table and speak to the entire school like this. And he would drop a pen and silence. This is what it was. Everybody was in a state of shock. And that immediately after that uh, put me on Hamas map and on the Islamic uh, student uh, movement uh, map that uh, with no time I became the president of not only that school, but of the city of Ramallah. And I was only 16 or 17 years wow. old. Wow. And they were older students. So, and that got me in lots of trouble, lots of confrontation, fights on the streets. And this is why I'm not afraid of the crowd. Because literally, there was no day without a confrontation, especially with Fatah uh, movement. That's yeah. the Hamas rival party, where we just all the time in fights, I would come back to my mother bleeding or with bruised eyes and uh, it, it just chaos, chaos. 
So then you become the president. And then what is your job then to do afterwards? What is the process to get other people to be involved and to indoctrinate them into Hamas? So we got material from the movement, from the handler, mm -hmm. basically. And uh, they would give me thousands of books or uh, magazines and newspapers that they were especially for the members of the Islamic student division about the ideology, about uh, Islam, about uh, even how to become secret, how to become invisible to the authorities. And that was from the early age. If there is something that I remember very well is this thing. Like, for example, if there is following that you've been traced, how you're going to mislead the person who's pursuing you, if uh, how to communicate through a dead point, which was, you know, we were just only students at school. But many times when a superior in the organization wanted to communicate with us, it was not even directly. So I would go to a dead point, what would, they would call it, deep in the mountains or sometimes in the mosque or in a, a garbage bin, uh, whatever it is, and there would be a message. So I'd never actually meet the connecting point or the person handling a certain issue because they did not want to reveal their identity to me. Even though I was a son of a top Hamas leader, they did not want to communicate with me directly. And I was encouraged if I had to communicate with others I would do the same thing. So how would you do it? You'd write a message to someone? Like, where would you do? So basically, there would be a dead point. And this dead point, I would How would drop. everyone know what the dead point is, though? So basically, it would be a certain location. Who picks it? Like the... So we, I would be directed to that location through a medium. So somebody, let's say, I would find the, uh, the message and the message would say, okay, you go to this mosque and in this mosque there is, uh, uh, what's uh, the box you put like a dead body in? Oh, you mean like the coffin? The coffin. Yeah. Okay, and uh, because funerals usually are prepared and they prepare the dead people at the mosque. So they're like a bunch of those. And they're not desirable. Nobody would go there and touch them. They're scary. Yeah. So I would be directed, let's say, at 1 a.m. in the morning to go into the mosque to one of these coffins and I would find, let's say, something there. It would be a material. Sometimes it would be uh, magazines, it would be uh, painting for gravity, uh, graffiti, all type of material support for Hamas and their activities. And the job sometimes would be, okay, you need to go out and make this statement on the walls of the city, throughout the city. So we would be required at age of 17, 18 to put on a mask, so they would provide the masks. It would be like basically the whole gear available at this coffin. But this is just like one example because yeah. we don't repeat the same location. But at this coffin, let's say you would find masks, uh, covers, whatever, uh, some, some weapon. It wasn't guns at that time, but they would give us knives, etc., for uh, like to defend ourselves in case something happens. And we were required to do such a thing somewhere between 1 and 3 a.m. So after everybody's asleep. Mm -hmm. So we would go like throughout the city, writing Hamas uh, propaganda or Hamas message, whatever it is to public or even to the IDF. So 
this was one of the things that I did at a very young age and it was scary. And once actually we got arrested in the act, but we were too young for Israel to keep us in prison and we were released, even though I, I, I got cut with a mask over my head and Hamas material support. And we were just doing some Hamas activity after midnight. So basically, as you see, you know, this is how much I loved my father and I believed in his cause and I, I wanted to do whatever it took. Uh, I dedicated lots of my energy to the Hamas cause and to the Hamas project. This way, when I criticized Hamas, I didn't criticize Hamas as an outsider. I knew a lot about them. And uh, I was considered a leader at a very young age. And uh, later on, I became my father's uh, right hand. I was responsible for his uh, protection. And uh, I reached as far as Damascus, Amman, Jordan, abroad, Gaza. I never been to Gaza physically, but most of Hamas leadership in Gaza uh, was in communication with me on a regular basis. Most of Hamas leadership in Lebanon, in Syria, and in uh, at that time was Saudi Arabia, was in touch with me because this is how they got to my father. So I knew a lot about the movement. And I, in fact, at some point, I knew about Hamas operation a lot more than my father knew about them because he separated himself from the activity of Hamas. But I was literally in everything that they were doing at some point, not all the time, but right. at least during the second Palestinian Intifada, I had few years that I knew a lot about the movement and how they were doing. Actually, I was moving them, but they didn't know that I, what actually was moving them, uh, the Israeli intelligence, because our work was not just to collect information. Lots of Hamas military wing trusted me and uh, we manipulated them. Like literally we give them money. You know, many people say about money. Yes, yeah. there was lots of money, but we gave them the money to move from a place to a place and we set uh, perfect traps for them. And uh, like at some point, for example, when I, when I needed to communicate with uh, Khalid Mashar in Damascus, I had to send him a Hamas operative, someone who, who was uh, trustworthy. And uh, the Israeli intelligence did not like the idea because it was very risky. But for me, it was uh, the challenge, can we get to him? Because it was almost impossible to get to him. And can we get a device inside his office? And uh, that was something I orchestrated, of course, with the help of the agency and their cover and whatever, you know, we had to. This is when you were a spy. This yeah. was like during the thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's all connected, you know, it's this midnight mission that I did. And later on, the uh, dangerous missions that we did throughout the region. The methods that I developed actually uh, countering Hamas, they were not just uh, coincidental. It was all because I knew how they worked. I knew how they worked and I manipulated those forces within their organization against them. And this was the surprise of the Israeli intelligence that they actually had lots of information. They did not lack information, but they didn't know how to make sense of it. They didn't know how to analyze it fast. You would bring an expert right. and give him piles of paper, yeah. of documents. You would spend months reading it. And if you bring more than one brain, then they are now, uh, they miss the whole picture. It's like a puzzle yeah. and they have the missing pieces. But for me, I just had small amount of information that made perfect sense to me and I acted fast. And it's all about time and time frame because if you act late, means that a suicide bomber reached their target and it's too late now. 
So basically- Did uh, you save a lot of those things from happening? You know, I don't want to take credits for it because it, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And in principle, if you save one human life, it's equal to saving the entire humanity because it's about the principle. Yeah. But what really matters that Hamas, or let's say that community prepared me with such a rigid discipline system that it was meant to break me, but it, it didn't. I just, every year I became stronger and stronger and stronger. And all the challenges that I had to go through on a personal level, or from the society or political level, or just being under the lens of the society for being the son of my father and their expectations. It just made me into something very, very different. And I was able to function with, uh, you can say super consciousness at a very, very young age. That uh, even the might of the Israeli intelligence, they were shocked of how I was able to just solve dilemma. And sometimes it was very, very complicated. And sometimes all it took for me to just see two people sitting in the wrong place and I would see what they were doing and say, it's like, okay, those guys should not be here. And they would be arrested. And that night we'd find a dozen of suicide uh, belts in their uh, living room. And everybody, how in the world did you figure this out? And I still don't have perfect answers to that. So just being so deep in that culture that yeah. it's, it's not like, you know, I, I was, uh, let's say, filled with hatred since childhood and I wanted to take revenge no, as I much as I lived it, I lived it to the deepest possible level outside prison, in school, in the Islamic movement, uh, in the Hamas infrastructure, throughout the entire indoctrination process. And that was more than enough to figure out what Hamas was. Did you know Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day? I didn't. And according to the EPA, indoor air is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. And in some cases, even 100 times more polluted. And the data shows that an air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally. Wow. So then what's the solution? I'm going to introduce you to an air purifier that captured the attention of established media outlets all over the world, like CNN, Money, ABC, and it's called Air Doctor. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens, such as pollen, pet dander, dust mite mold, and even bacteria and viruses, so your lungs don't have to. And Air Doctor purifiers also have a feature called WhisperJet that makes the fans 30% quieter than any other ordinary air purifier. And Air Doctor also comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code HUSTLE. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to $300 off. And exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So lock this special offer in by going to Air Doctor, A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code HUSTLE now. Okay, but when you say, okay, so you say you went to jail when you were in prison, 
where then Israel was able to, you, that you were in prison for 16 months. And that's when you saw the, like, the horrific things that the Palestinians were doing to the other Palestinians, the killings. And that's when it turned you to become a spy for Israel. Why did you even end up in jail in the first place? Like, what did you do that, what did you get caught doing? Guns. You had guns. Guns. I had guns. I had guns and uh, we made a mistake. Or actually, I wasn't the one who made a mistake, but one of uh, our uh, cell group made a phone call to my father's uh, cell phone. At that time, cell phones were just very, very rare. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in our entire town, maybe there were just a couple of them and my father had one of them. So one of my teammates called the phone and uh, he said something and uh, we were arrested right away. Wow. But thankfully, we did not use the guns, but I was not that far. I was not that far from really getting in real trouble. Had we used the guns, I would be spending a life term in Israeli prison by now. Wow. And where are your brothers and sisters now? Obviously, you don't talk to them, or do you? We are not in touch. I have five brothers. I don't know where, where they're residing. I assume one of them in Turkey. The other one could be in Europe. The rest, I think, still in the West Bank. My sisters, one is in Gaza. I don't know if she's alive or dead. She's married to a top Hamas leader who actually was released in the uh, Gilad uh, prisoner swap. Just now? You mean just a couple of weeks ago? No, back in 2000, oh, about 2000, okay. 2011, along with Yahya Sinwar. Oh, wow. Yeah. And my, my father actually offered my sister to this savage. This guy killed three people with a knife in Jerusalem back, I think, in 1989. So my father, after my story came out and I brought lots of shame on the family, his way to wash the shame of the family was to offer my sister to this savage, a top Hamas terrorist, mass murderer. And since then, I lost contact with my sister. She moved to Gaza. Uh, he's a target, so she is. So I don't know if she's still alive or she's, uh, she's killed. And also, uh, along with their children, mm -hmm. who, whom I never met. So that's one of my sisters. The other sister is actually living in Dearborn, Michigan. Her husband is originally Palestinian, a doctor. And it was an arranged marriage. This is how, uh, how he took my sister when she was only 19. Most beautiful girl you can imagine. And they took my sister and they just disappeared. And we didn't know where they were, their phone number, anything. Five years, we did not hear anything from my sister. And I was still working for the Israeli intelligence in the Palestinian territory at that time. When I moved to the United States, I looked them up. I was able to find them. It was not an easy mission. And I went to see her. And they were very angry that I could find them because they thought they could hide. He's mm -hmm. a doctor. Yeah, he's a doctor at a public hospital. What, what he thought, that I, nobody can find him? I know, that's kind of... Yes, yeah. but he's, yeah, he's an idiot, yeah. is what it is. <laughs> yeah, you know, keep, keeping my sister in some maybe basement in a Detroit uh, or Dearborn, Dearborn house, and with no communication with my, with my family. Very religious, sick people. So this is my other sister. And it was not a surprise. This sister, who's an American, was the first sister to actually disown me. 
She was the first one that disowned me. So just the matrix, matrix of my life keeps uh, expanding. We, we can never finish in just interview of how chaotic my life experience uh, has been. But it is what it is. How about your mom? Well, my mother could be the only person in the entire picture who actually did not compromise her love. When my father, when, when I wrote the book, and... The book uh, is called The Green Prince. The book is called Son of Hamas. Oh, the son of... Oh, son sorry. Of, the movie is called... The documentary is called The Green Prince. By the way, I don't know where... I want to know where you got the name or they got the name Green Prince. And the, and the book is called The Son of Hamas. Sorry. The Green Prince was uh, my code name within the Israeli mm. intelligence. And uh, this is... Uh, talk, t- t- just finish your mom's situation. I'm curious. Yeah. So my mother disagreed with my father when he decided to disown me. I told him about my involvement with Israel after I migrated to the United States. I told him this is what I did. And uh, I wrote a book about it. And the book is coming out soon. So I wanted him to hear from me directly, not to hear from the media. And I had a very short window to tell him the truth about my role. And I wanted him to know that I saved his life. Yeah, I wanted him to know that he was a target and the only thing that saved his life was my involvement with the, uh, with the Israeli intelligence. Is that the truth? This is the truth, the absolute truth. Because if you look at all his rank, even below him, a lot less important Hamas uh, leaders than, than my father. All of them were assassinated during the Second Palestinian Antifada. But uh, the irony that the Israeli intelligence needed him alive, not dead, because he was our access to Hamas. If my father wasn't in the picture, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have access to Hamas. So they, this is what saved him. And of course, whatever uh, management they, that they had to save him from himself, not only from Israel, from other intelligence services, and from, most importantly, rival parties like Fatah, who wanted him dead. So I was protecting him not only from Israel, I was protecting him from the entire world and most importantly, from the poor choices that he made in his life. And uh, when I revealed my true identity to him, which I'm very happy and pleased that I told him in person, because I did not want him only to hear In from person? Me. No, I mean, over the phone, but it was me personally yeah. oh, communicating okay. to him. It was not a third party, let's say a newspaper or a TV right. or some other person. And I wanted to be honest with him. Actually, I dedicated the book to him. I wanted him to see my life through my lens at that time. I wanted him to see my reality and what I had to witness as a human being. And especially that he had no clue what Israel is and what the Israeli intelligence is. He just sees them as enemy and they clash. But he did not get to see them from within, to see how they work and why they work and what it is like to be a democracy in the face of a terrorist group, uh, rather a terrorist within an outlaw organization Mm -hmm. in the face of a democracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, How could you see the other side? I was able to see both sides, to see his organization and to see the most secret uh, Israeli Jewish community out there, that I became one of them, that their struggle became my struggle. And we worked together as a team they protected my life, I protected theirs, and our goal was to save human lives. Uh, this is the job of, uh, of intelligence service that serves democracy. It's not to take revenge from people. It's not to go uh, after terrorists only for revenge, mm-hmm. as much as 
go out for justice. Right. And with the most creative, intelligent uh, methods out there, which was very impressive. And this, this is actually the true school of my life. Wow. You know, where right. I learned the biggest lessons uh, about myself and about uh, the human movement, uh, the human behavior, uh, the structure of society, uh, reality, false sense of reality and human delusion. Because we created the reality and we saw how people respond to it. And uh, their misperception was just mind-blowing every time that the reality on the ground, what we are creating was something and what people perceive it from the outside was just insane. The contrast of what actually was happening. Tell me what the contrast, tell me the difference. What was it? What were you creating? Every versus- operation we did every operation of every objective, whatever our intention was, let's say, to save one human life, whatever action we had that resulted in an arrest or uh, sabotaging a terrorist uh, attack or sometimes assassinations or just a play that uh, there was uh, what appeared to be lots of violence, but there was no violence. Like one of the examples, we had to orchestrate big things. I, I cannot talk lots of uh, these details because I'm not allowed to, honestly. But there is one one thing that I can, okay. because it's already mentioned in the book. Okay. And Why that, can't you talk about the details? Because, because those are the secrets of the Israeli intelligence. Like, oh, yes, basically. I don't want you and, to talk about that. No, no, it's, uh, I, I have, I'm under oath not to talk about this stuff. I understand, yes. And... Uh, it's, uh, it's basically also given uh, the methods of how we do the job to the terrorist. Maybe now they know a lot more than what they knew 20 years ago, but always the, the Israeli intelligence don't like anybody to talk about how they do the job. But one of the things that I already talked about, so we can talk about it, I was involved in lots of operations in many fronts uh, after many wanted people, uh, high-profile terrorists, uh, many of them were arrested. And uh, I was getting very close to the point where people would become suspicious. So how could I be the only survivor, like the, the survivor, the only one who's just getting away all the time, but everyone else has been arrested or assassinated, etc. So the, um, the Israeli intelligence wanted to do a play uh, to uh, manipulate Hamas security wing and uh, basically they wanted me to go to my house and they wanted to fake an arrest attempt but this fake play involves big army the entire city of Ramallah that everybody has to believe that I would become the most wanted man in the city how by the violence and the aggression of the operation that is about to take place. And all of it was just fake. Only a handful of people knew of this, uh, of this game. Literally three people within the Israeli intelligence. The army, the IDF, had no clue. The IDF had the command, you go in the city of Ramallah tonight, you're about to arrest a high-profile terrorist. He's very dangerous. He has guns. If you see him, kill him. It's as simple as that. So this is like the as bad as it can get for uh, chasing a terrorist. 
But in order to do this, you have to bring special forces because you're going be, uh, behind the enemy lines. So you have to bring basically the IDF division of undercover mm -hmm. agents, which they would dress like Palestinians. They would go using Palestinian cars or other cars. So people don't get suspicious of them. They would come to my house, my family house. They surround the house, secure the area. So I cannot escape. The moment they do this, the big army now would come with tanks, uh, armored vehicles, etc. If there is resistance and shooting, there could be choppers and they're just everybody waiting. So we're talking about big operation that would take millions of dollars to just move such a force. And that's just to orchestrate a game to make Hamas believe that I was wanted, that Israel was not letting me move freely. They wanted me dead. But the arrangement was to evacuate my family out of the picture and uh, to take them to safety. So the special forces would come first, surround the house. Then the army come, call my mother, my siblings, everybody to uh, evacuate the house. They gave me two minutes before the special forces arrived to escape because it had to look like an escape. And I get out of the house, the forces arrive, my mother, is in the house, they call for everybody, and now the media come, Al Jazeera, other TVs come to cover uh, this uh, attack. Everybody see the tanks moving, militia come, they start shooting at the tanks, and everything is uh, on live TV. And on the speakers, they're calling for my name to surrender. While I was already sitting in a safe house watching the whole thing on TV, but the army doesn't know that I'm not in the house because they are trusting the information coming by the Israeli intelligence, their own intelligence. So when I don't surrender and my entire family is out of the house, they shoot a missile into the house. They destroyed like half of the house. And in my room, there was at least 150 bullets in the wall. They start a crazy shootout killing everything inside the house when I did not surrender. So it was a war zone. It was, and it continued for at least five hours of fire exchange with terrorists outside at the house. Then after that, they brought the dogs, they went inside and no one was in the house and everything was just a game. And the idea of thought it was just a failure that they escaped, but they didn't know how I escaped. They didn't know that the Israeli intelligence gave me the heads up one or two minutes before the special forces arrived. So special forces didn't know that it was part of the None of Israeli them. intelligence program. None of them. They treated me exactly like they treated the most wanted man in the city. And I was wanted. Bring him, if not alive, bring him dead is okay. Wow, that's so crazy. So this is like one of the... But the like orchestrating something like this, for example. Now, this built my trust with Hamas. On one hand, they became immediately obligated to provide me security. So they had now to give me access, not to all, but to many of their safe houses in the city. The safe houses that we were trying to find for a very long period of time and we did not find, where Hamas military wing, top Hamas leaders hide for a long time. Do you know where they are now? Like, I mean, I know now it's been years and years it's, and it's years. It's been years. It's been years. But, but well, I know you wouldn't know specifically. Yeah. 
But based on all the experience that you've had and know the, the thinking that goes behind all of it, could you be helpful into like, you know, maybe it would be like, you must understand the tunnel situation and how all that was. But that was no, the tunnels actually they happened after uh, you, after you, long correct? after I left. And I never been to Gaza also. Right. Because uh, you'd but, be killed. Uh, I never been to Gaza. I just simply I grew up in the West Bank. But if away. you went now, would you be killed? Uh, most likely. If I go to any Arab country now, I could be, I, I could get in trouble. But go on. But you said, but you, but the safe houses and like even in the U.S. though, like, do you know what? Can you even be helpful to know what people should be even looking for? What the FBI should be looking for because you have that mindset because you've been around it. M most importantly. If it was my field, it was, let's say, uh, the language I understand, the mentality I understand. I had a lead. I need a lead. You need a lead. I need a lead. This is the hardest part to find. Uh, once you have the lead, it's just a matter of time uh, until you arrive at your target. So as long as I have a lead, it doesn't matter. We will get there. The biggest problem when you don't have a lead. And this is what happened, you know, that we were struggling to find the masterminds who sent the suicide bomber attacks. But when we orchestrated such a big drama, which was very dangerous, and they involved big army, and we risked the lives of Israeli soldiers, like literally. I know. It's... And it was just fake. So, But that gave us access to the safe houses. And within a year, we destroyed Hamas military wing in the West Bank. Like literally, we destroyed them. And we reached some of the most dangerous terrorists like Ibrahim Hamid, which took us eight years to capture him. This guy is respons is convicted with, uh, I think, 65 killings. But we believe that he killed a lot more than 65. But we could not convict him. So he's in Israeli prison today. And again, as a person who was part of the operation to capture this mass murder, I tell you, we spent eight years looking for him in a small town of Ramallah, less than 25,000 population. And this is how hard it was to find him. And today, he's number one on Hamas list to be released in exchange for the hostages in Gaza. So again and again, this it's the karma that keeps repeating itself and bringing me back to the same individuals. It's why like sometimes when, when people see me and they see me very, very angry, you know, the way I speak, mm -hmm. it's a fight because to me, the fight is on. It did not finish. It, it did not stop. Yet. And it happened that Ibrahim Hamid was the head of the Hamas security wing inside prison, torturing and killing the Palestinian prisoners in prison before he was released and he became the Hamas military wing outside, the mastermind behind most of the suicide bombing attacks during the second Palestinian Intifada before he was captured. Then now, Ibrahim Hamid, the same individual, come back to the picture to be released for innocent hostages being held by those savages after October 7 attacks. So if you, this is why like for me, try to just capture the matrix of my life and all this chaos and w what could appear as coincid uh, coincidence, but it's not. Mm -hmm. It's just something that I really, it's necessary to deconstruct. Like it's my responsibility to destroy this thing called Hamas, like literally eradicate it, whatever it takes. It's not only Israel fight against Hamas. It's my fight against Hamas is a lot bigger. I don't have as much power, but it's a lot bigger fundamentally. Yeah. 
and this is why like I have to and if Hamas is not defeated I know we are going to have a lot more trouble in the near future are you surprised by the barbaric massacre that happened on October 7th are you surprised by that do you, is it do you believe that I was under I told I was told that the terrorists were on drugs because it was so barbaric to go to be that evil you had to be put on drugs do you believe that like are you were you surprised and do you believe that's true look I I am not surprised by Hamas uh, brutality I've seen a lot but what happened on October 7 it was not a massacre I thought at the beginning was a massacre because I saw just some footage here and mm -hmm. there. I saw mm -hmm. kidnaps. So uh, before I saw uh, there was no suicide bombing attack that I did not see uh, from Hamas because all the time we tried to right. I tried to identify the terrorists who blow up and we we needed to know who was it to see who sent it. Right. And so I would get those fresh photos from a suicide bombing scene and I have to say one of the ugliest things that I had to see throughout my career for 10 years. So there was no suicide bombing attack that I wasn't there, like literally seeing the victims and seeing the... So when I saw some of the, uh, okay, you know, they use explosives, people dying explosives, but what what changed the entire thing after I watched the, uh, mm. what they call the massacre uh, film, the 47 minutes at the United Nations. And my life would never be the same because what Hamas uh, have become on the, such a m much bigger scale and how they developed is uh, something exceeded my imagination. Uh, their brutality on a smaller uh, level is something, but to move systematically, wiping out, annihilating everything in their way, close to 20 Jewish communities where they killed everything not only humans but also animal raping blowing up things throwing grenades into shelters i saw a hamas savage throwing a grenade into a room killing a father in front of his two children while i don't know the children were different that they could not and just seeing that you know how the children survived but the father did not survive. And the, the kids were just looking at what just happened to their father. It is like nothing. There is no evil that can uh, top this. And as someone who fought against Hamas, as someone who was with Hamas, as someone who was born in Hamas household, someone whose father established Hamas, the the impact of just seeing that as as the outcome the creation of this monster it was just devastating i got sick i got sick in the worst possible way and for many years i protected my father for many years and i always differentiated between my father as a person and the father uh, uh, the persona as a hamas leader but after watching this I had to disown him completely out of my life. Even when he disowned me, I did not disown him from my life. You know, about 12 or 15 years ago, he publicly disowned me. He said, this is not my son. You can kill him if you want. This is what he said to public, that my blood is allowed. So that was his decision. Even when he did that decision, I still loved him. 
and I understood his position. I was I brought lots of shame on him, and whatever he did is okay. Is my father, I will always love him. Up to October 7th, where I had to make a decision, and that was one of the hardest decisions that I had to make. That in truth, there is no compromission. Now we define the lines. And we cannot just say Hamas is evil with one exception. Or this society is is wonderful except they have a mistake here, a mistake there. No. Right now, we have to define the lines. And what happened was pure evil. And anyone who's, who plotted, planned, even justified a genocide, a genocide that's not a massacre, it's not only a terrorist attack, it's a genocide by all standards. And it's happened in the 21st century. I had to define the lines. Where do I stand? Cannot be one leg here, one leg there, and not even emotional connection to that world. And this is where I said publicly that Hamas leaders, wherever they are, should be executed, assassinated, and no exceptions. And that includes Sheikh Hassan Youssef. I'm going to ask you a question, actually, a different question. Are you surprised that, that they were even able to penetrate Israel as much as they were able to, given Israel's intelligence? They're known to be the most intelligent, you know, best army in the world. And then they were not even able to even help their own civilians for, for hours and hours and hours. No one could find anyone. Did that surprise you? It's uh, not a surprise uh, as much as it's uh, the nature of uh, the Hamas uh, deception. Because Israel considered the southern community after they withdrew, withdrew from Gaza as a potential threat. But there was a truce. There was a ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire that was not hosted, but it was... Uh, protected by Qatar, by the United States, and in the international community, Egypt included. What else? You don't bring your entire army and stay at emergency state all the time. Yes, it is the most powerful army, but can you stay at emergency state all the time? No democracy can afford this. People need to go do their work eventually. And... Uh, you can have a number of soldiers, but it would be for very basic defense purpose. And we're talking about mostly farmers in, in those communities. Mm -hmm. but they were, and they were plotting for so many years, of two course. years to do this. Well, Hamas knew this weakness, yeah. you know, thanks to technology, drones, and the help of Iran and other uh, intelligence services. Do you think Could Putin be... helped because they wanted to take I'm the... sure, yeah. I'm sure Russia helped Hamas, at least give, given them political cover, at least. I don't want to say more, but Hamas had many trips to, to Moscow and uh, what the heck were they doing in Moscow? What's their uh, relation to the KGB? So basically, even if it was a surprise, what are we expecting? You know, when we have just the very basic soldiers defending basically the bases and doing just very basic defense job. And we're not talking about uh, now, you know, the entire army is in the South. It's an emergency city. Well, now it is. But what I'm saying is like, don't, how did Israel, like if they were planning and plotting for so many years, why, in your opinion, would Israel not have known about it? You know, Hamas is very know? secret. I, I, I know what, you, what you're trying to get with this. The, you want me to say that there was a failure. 
and there was a failure. But uh, believe me, I don't want not, there. To, I, no, I, no, I, but I there, there was. Yeah, it's it's okay. beyond like what you think. No, it's it's okay because it's not it's not shame. You know, it's uh, again Israel invest lots of energy in defense, in security, mm -hmm. the intelligence service is the most powerful. But this doesn't mean that they cannot make mistake, yeah. especially when the enemy is hiding under the ground and the enemy is avoiding to use technology. Yeah. And uh, even those who carried the attack, they didn't know about the plan until the last moment. So Hamas kept the secret uh, among a handful of people mm. and that helped them a lot. They did not use technology and uh, there is a possibility that they sent the wrong messages through technology to make Israel feel safe. And they were good at that. Maybe there were some informants that they actually were double agents. Mm -hmm. So they passed the wrong information. Don't you think that, I, I would imagine that would be what would happen. There is a possibility. There is a possibility because in Gaza is very different. Like when I was in the West, in the West Bank, for example, part I had to sit on a polygraph test all the time. Like there was no way for us, and not only me, actually, everybody within the intelligence community who had access to uh, sensitive material or operation, mm -hmm. everyone had to sit down on a polygraph test. Everyone uh, in Gaza is a different reality. And this is always was my concern. I was like, okay, now you're, you're handling thousands of informants in Gaza, but how do you know that they are sincere and they are giving you actually legitimate information? I always ask myself this question, because if you are not able to bring them into the Israeli territory and test them on a regular basis, your enemy could take advantage of this gap and of this weakness and try to manipulate those assets and use them against you by giving you false sense mm -hmm. of security or simply misinforming you. Then if Hamas was um, keeping the secret, not revealing the, uh, the plan, let's say the mega plan mm -hmm. to Israel uh, or to, to their members, then how Israel would know if they kept it in, in the hands of just a few people. So anyway, it's very hard now to tell everything. I'm sure there will be investigations of how Israel failed. A huge part of the failure that Hamas was attacking civilian communities and many of them looked like civilians and we didn't know who was who. So how can you bring the army to rescue those communities under attack, not knowing who's actually Hamas and who's Israel. This is basically, it was very hard to differentiate. And uh, this is another part where it, the response had to take uh, hours. It's not that, you know, people were afraid to just no, drive south. It's like, how much force can you use without actually uh, harming your own civilians, uh, yeah. trying to destroy the invaders. And I know you got to, I mean, I've, I've kept you here so long and I really apologize. Can I ask you a couple more questions? Sure, sure. Are you surprised by a couple things that the destruction in Gaza now people are blaming Israel? What do you think of that? Like people are looking at Israel at like it's their fault of all the destruction and in Gaza when in reality it's like they're defending. Now they have to defend defending themselves. 
Are you surprised by that? Are you surprised by the amount of protesting on the West, you know, in the West about the anti-Semitism in, in the universities? What's happening? What's happened, I should say, since October 7th? And how much, how many people are in support of Hamas on the West, in the West, I should say? Look, Israel is the victim or the only victim actually of a genocide. This is what happened. So accusing Israel of committing genocide while they are the victim of a genocide is uh, not only unfair, it's uh, absurd and so twisted. And um, like basically to take... Uh, I don't want to say a rape victim and accuse them of being a rapist uh, or being uh, But that's fault. basically what is this, happening. This, this is exactly what happened. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what's happening. So basically, Israel being accused of something that is suffering uh, of. And uh, the Gazans, uh, they gave Hamas cover. They supported Hamas. They did not condemn Hamas. They hated Israel. They believed in the ideology of annihilating or uh, having a genocide against Israel, which eventually took place you know, for many, many years, tens of years since the establishment of the State of Israel. Palestinians did not agree to the existence of the State of Israel. Yasser Arafat, it was a tactical thing. He, he mm -hmm. approved it on paper, but that was ridiculous. It was not sincere. And uh, they didn't do anything in the education to actually uh, change the paradigm or uh, help the public accept Israel as a reality. Instead, they incited against Israel. So the practical steps on the ground weren't helpful to change this idea of the Palestinian society and the idea of annihilating Israel or ethnically cleansing everybody. It kept uh, growing. Yeah. It kept growing. And this is what we had to face eventually on October 7. It was not just the day of October 7. It was just the whole process of indoctrination, of political campaign, political propaganda. But how do they do it in the, so, so well in Europe, in the West, like the U.S., Canada, everywhere else beyond the Middle East? People, there's millions of people protesting for pro-Palestine, pro-free you know, Palestine, blah, blah, blah. How did, what, like, what was the tipping point in your opinion of how that happened where Israel, the Jewish people became truly the enemy and the, you know, the oppressor to such a level now? That's what I'm curious about. Did that surprise you on the wet in the West? Because you have like the LGBTQ, uh, you have, uh, you have the LGBTQ, uh, the LGBT. Yes. QH. Thank you. Thank you. For, for exactly. <laughs> Protesting. Meanwhile, they would be shot and killed if they even entered, right. you know, these, these places. Is this surprising you? The amount of support coming from that, going towards that side. And what, what is that tipping point? What happened to indoctrinate kind of the Western culture to such a level? Um. I don't want to say that this was a surprise because hate doesn't know political uh, right. boundaries. And uh, it's uh, instead of seeing it as pro-Palestine, I see it as anti-Israel, uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish. Uh, this is the opportunity of many people uh, who actually 
uh, hate the Jewish uh, community mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they have a problem. Uh, so they basically uh, projecting their hatred, trying to inflict pain on the Jewish people. And again, instead of condemning Hamas for committing a genocide against Israel, they were very fast to condemn Israel of committing a genocide, totally uh, twisted. And uh, this is this is hatred. And uh, they don't even know what Palestine is. They don't even know. You go ask for go ask people who are marching and protesting, saying whatever the river to the sea. They don't even know if it's a river or a sea. They have no idea. What they don't they're... know what river or what sea. They know nothing. Uh, they, and again, like many, they don't know even what Palestine is. They this, don't even know what Palestine is. Uh, and this takes me back to my childhood, you know, where I got fed up with the cause, you know, because the cause, everybody is swearing by the name of the cause. And all the corruption, all the abuse, all the torture, all the violence can be justified by the name of the cause and for the cause and because of the common enemy. So this is where I was, screw this cause, you know, I don't care, I don't care anymore. First fix the basic things, stop abusing children to begin with. Then we can talk about nationalism and the bigger uh, issue. And now it seems that this phenomena called Palestine or cause is an ego trick. You know, so many people need the mask. You know, I played the game myself growing up and my father still playing that game that many people. Where is your father now, by the way? He's in Israeli prison. Are they trying to get him back with the, I guess you don't know, with the hostage ex- exchange? Uh, I'm sure. I, I don't know. I, I don't think so because he's not, he's not spending a uh, long life term. He's not, he's just uh, temporary there. Te- what As, do you mean temporary? Temporary, like he's not, he's not spending, let's say, a hundred years. Like How ever, much is he spending there? He's just uh, Hanging six, out? six months under administrative detention. For what? For just being a Hamas leader. They can just let him out in six, they're going to have to let him out in six months? Yes, yes, it's democracy. If you if you don't have anything to conv- uh, to convict him, you know this is how Israel and this is why everybody. It's very hard fight for Israel that actually many of the high profile terrorists had to be released because Israel could not convict them. And if you cannot convict uh, somebody, how can you keep them in a prison in a democratic system? And Hamas takes total advantage of this situation. But anyway, it's uh, taken us back to, to the cause that many people need the cause. And uh, what I see here, you know, uh, angry, frustrated crowd uh, projecting their personal hatred on this cause. They don't know that this is the contribution of so many societies and politicians, uh, criminals, whatever you want to call it, throughout the conflict called Palestinian conflict that any, anybody could adapt the cause, say this is my cause and try to project their hatred through this medium, through this device called Palestine. But what is Palestine? We don't know. Is it a political entity? Is it uh, nationalism? Is it uh, ethnicity? Is it ethnic group? Is it a religion? Is it all that or minus all that? We, we, we don't know. There is no such a thing. It's hypothetical. It's just a very broad term called Palestine. And when people go 
blindly say just pro-Palestine, meaning anti-Israel. When they say Palestine from the river, the sea, they're not thinking Palestine. They're thinking wipe out Israel, annihilate Israel, the total destruction of the state of Israel. Right. You're saying they don't, they don't care what, what they're saying as long as Israel's gone is basically the bottom line, which means that like there's been so much anti-Semitism and Jewish hate just bubbling under the surface for so long. And any reason or excuse to, to kind of bring it up is what's happening. So then the next question I have for you is, as like a regular civilian here living in the, you know, in, in the U.S., what can we do to help our cause, to kind of show, show people the way, to kind of create less negativity towards Israel or Judaism? Like what it, 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 or is it just a lost cause and it's just really impossible at this point? What would you say? First, we have to eradicate uh, Hamas. We, we cannot live with uh, Hamas. They are now a threat, a global threat. And if they survive, tomorrow they will be a lot more dangerous. So Israel cannot afford this. United States cannot afford this. Anybody who's concerned of the global security cannot afford Hamas staying, staying in power. They have to go. Post-Hamas, I really don't know. And it looks like no one knows. Because the United States hopes that the Palestinian Authority would come and uh, replace Hamas. This is the, uh, a, the easy solution. But I'm not sure Israel want to do this because the Palestinian Authority did not prove that they are actually responsible counterpart. They break their word all the time. Yes, and they lost control. Don't forget, before Hamas, it was the Palestinian Authority, and they mismanaged big time. They are the ones who failed their job uh, to keep Hamas in check. And Hamas had the coup back in 2007, took over the Gaza Strip, and uh, it was the fault of the Palestinian Authority. So today, why do we trust them again? So anyway, it could be best-case scenario, I'd say best case scenario for Gaza, it would be a moderate leadership, could be Mohammed Dahlan or Mahmoud Abbas, I don't know, uh, who the United States would recommend or uh, give support to uh, govern Gaza, if there will be any Gaza, actually, after this war. Worst case scenario, there will be Gaza with no infrastructure, everything would be destroyed from the mosque, to roads, to institutions, government buildings, courts, everything is being destroyed right now in this war. And in previous wars, Israel helped the Palestinians rebuild Gaza, helped the international community, the donors, to actually come back to Gaza and rebuild it. This time, I think Israel is not obligated not after the genocide happened. And Israel is, is aiming now for a buffer zone where the Gazans cannot even get close. That would take miles and miles and miles for them to be able even to get to the Israeli fence. And this is going to be devastating for Gaza, but it, it will be necessary for the Israeli security. But if this happened, if this happened, expect chaos in Gaza because Hamas has many problems with Gazans, and there will be time for retaliation where they want to get even. 
because Hamas killed and tortured, oppressed their rival party, Fatah, in Gaza. And mm. there is going to be a time after this war with no infrastructure, with no police, no army, no institution, no building, no central government of any kind, Hamas will be just fleeing force, especially after their uh, leadership is, uh, is killed. So they will be just fleeing force. And there is going to be a tribal conflict where Palestinian internal revenge will take place naturally. And if that happens, when if Israel is not going to take responsibility for rebuilding Gaza, and I don't think Israel will do anything, Israel is going to just destroy Hamas, possibly build this buffer zone and say, you know, do whatever you want on the other side. And if you get close, we're going to destroy you. But this could mean a civil war in Gaza, could mean similar to the civil war that happened in Lebanon. And this is the worst case scenario. The world is trying as much as they can that the, to, uh, to prevent this uh, bad scenario from happening, but uh, nobody can predict 100% of how Gaza post-war would look like. But also, Hamas is all over the world, as you were saying earlier, too. They're heavily funded. Who is, I mean, as far as you know, who is, I know, sorry, I know, I know, I got so many questions for you, I know. Can I ask you one more question then? Sure. Okay, you said something earlier and I never asked you, and then I won't ask you about the funding right now. You keep on saying the word shame, shame. Can you talk about the shame, honor, there's an honor, shame part of this whole, of your of your culture. And can we talk about the martyrdom? Are they offered money for each person, Israeli civilian that they are killed? I heard there's a whole thing called pay to slay. Is that accurate? So the bases in the West are right and wrong. The, this is the scale. In the Middle East, it's honor and shame. Very different uh, value system. And everything is based on honor and shame. It's the honor of the tribe. It's the honor of the individual. And this is why what I did was what could be the most shameful by the Arabian standards to uh, become a traitor. And I became a traitor by choice. It's, it's very different, you know, when you catch somebody in the act, then you shame them mm -hmm. and they would lose everything. Then someone was at the top of the game and uh, everything was going uh, to my advantage. Then I turned the table, uh, table upside down and I said, this is what I did. I wrote a book about it, not being ashamed. So I was, uh, it was uh, my big fight with the enemy of shame, guilt, and fear. This is, those are the uh, main demons that keep Arabians in darkness. Especially when someone see that this is the right thing to do, but if you do the right thing, you will have to face the enemy of shame. The society will say shame on you. If I saved a human life and that life was a Jewish life, shame on you. If I stopped a suicide bomber from reaching their target to kill many civilians, shame on you, you know, for doing this. This is treason. So, and what is bravery? Bravery is to take, to put on a suicide belt and go blow yourself up, killing many innocent people. This is honorable in that culture. It's praised. A society that praised suicide bombers, a society that's praising those savages who killed many on October 7th, committing genocide. 
uh, they are not condemned. They are praised as freedom fighters, as uh, sacred warriors. So in this type of society and this type of mentality, I had to challenge the value system and say, okay, you consider this as treason. Therefore, I become a traitor. It's my choice. I do it willingly. You did not capture me. And I am not afraid of your accusation. Whatever you think of me, your collective consciousness doesn't matter. What really matters, what I know is right to do. So if you look deep into the decision making and the uh, psychology behind it and why I made such choices, this was one of the biggest enemies that I had to fight against. And again, as a rape victim, I was ashamed most of my life, even though I was a victim of that. I could not tell anybody about it for shame. So again and again, fighting with this enemy called shame for doing the correct thing, that we should not be ashamed. And we should always fight for ourselves and fight the good fight. I'm not talking about seeking revenge and being violent. And I in no way seeking revenge from my people. If I wanted to do this, I would be still there and I would be seeking killing and destroying. But my approach is, has been completely different, that I need to find the origin of suffering, and that's falsehood, and that's the absence of truth, the absence of reason, the absence of uh, purity. And uh, when we, we lose all the qualities, uh, the divine qualities of society, and we replace them with violence, with abuse, with aggression, with manipulation, with corruption, with blaming, you know, blaming everything mm -hmm. on something called Israel. Israel. Then we have uh, fundamental problems. And this has been my fight. And it's honestly, it's uh, the fight within. It's the fight within that I had to fight it truthfully. I had to be 100% truthful to who I am and not concerned of what the people are going to say. Even if I get killed in the process, it's better to die in my pursuit to freedom than dying uh, in cowardice. And so, right, and, but your, and your idea of that's very different. Then the, the pay to slay, is it, act, is it accurate that people get paid Yes, yes, but person. this is ridiculous, though. You know, this is like the American uh, artificial way of seeing things. Okay. But what's the point if you pay somebody and they are going to die? Is what, what they're going to do with the money after their death? <laughs> what, for their family, it's, I would imagine. Uh, it, no, it's. I mean, money plays a small, a small role of this, but it's not the most fundamental uh, thing. It's the human delusion. It's when you, the honor, it's honor it's, system. It's, it's the honor system. You honor your family. It's the, you become the, the hero of the nation. It's the promise of the afterlife, of what's going to happen on the afterlife and all the pro promises. The seven of, brides. Of, uh, whatever it is. But it's, uh, there is uh, lots of pleasure and there is no pain and there is no suffering. So why not just escape all this suffering that is caused by those Zionist enemy, destroy them, make them feel uh, the pain, then after that, just escape all the pain together into utopia of uh, uh, absolute pleasure, uh, where all the things that they could not achieve in this uh, life, they would achieve it in the afterlife.
So uh, this is what the recruiters sell uh, the terrorists. It's not only money, you know, pay to slay, you know, it's, this is, uh, this can work in the case of a small crime uh, group uh, or organization, but at the level of Hamas, where they are able to mobilize thousands, tens of thousands of soldiers who are willing to die for their cause, for their cause and obey blindly, you need a lot more than money to move this type of, uh, of dangerous people. Did I keep you long enough here, by the way? Yes, you did. And it's about my dinner time. <laughs> oh my God, thank you so much. I, I, uh, I, I don't, how long has it even been? I have no idea. I have like a million more questions, but like you've been so gracious. Okay, everybody, I don't even know. You guys have to see the documentary Green Prince, but please grab up a copy of his book, The Son of Hamas. It is an amazing read. He is fascinating. So, I mean, but you're also like, you are a hero. You really are. I, I, I have to say the, the bravery that you have, the courage that you have to come out and speak your truth when it is not safe for you. It is quite dangerous. And so I, again, I am just so honored and happy that I've got the chance to sit down with you, to meet you to take you to Starbucks, the whole thing, you know? So thank you so much for, for being on this podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And you can go to sleep now because it's been five hours. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.